This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm John Sacalariatis, the host of the channel. On the show today, we are pleased to have Dr. Laura Donardis, a professor and interim dean at the School of Communication at American University. We'll be talking to Dr. Donardis about her new book, The Internet and Everything, Freedom and Security in a World with No Off Switch. Laura Donardis, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Laura, you are often called a scholar of internet governance, yet I know you're not fully satisfied with that description. Can you give our listeners some background on who you are and what you do in fact study? Absolutely. The word internet governance or the phrase internet governance is an oxymoron because it is a mode of control over technology and over our lives that is not necessarily about governments. So often when I use that term, and I do obviously in my own writing, People think about traditional political science issues and uh, the geopolitics of nation states, but really it is, um, it's about that, but it's also about the design of technical systems by engineers. It's about the policymaking role of private industry uh, to a great extent, and it's also about new international institutions that do not have a natural relationship to borders. So it's an entire ecosystem. That's what I study, and my area of expertise is the political implications of the technical infrastructure of the internet. And I'm trained as, um, in, I have a, a couple of engineering degrees. I was a practicing um, information technology designer for years. And my PhD is in a field called science and technology studies, which looks at the social implications and the social construction of uh, science and technology. And then I spent um, quite a few years um, at Yale Law School, both doing a postdoc and uh, teaching there. So um, it's very interdisciplinary, the topic, and I think my background reflects that in that it's about technology, it's about the politics of the technology, and also the legal structures around it. Excellent. And how did you come to write The Internet and Everything? I once wrote a book called The Global War for Internet Governance, uh, which is one of seven books that I've published around uh, the general topic of technology policy. And that book explained how the technical infrastructure of the internet is designed and controlled and by whom, and how these arrangements of technology are also arrangements of power. And no sooner did I close the laptop on that book uh, which w- actually I, I finished writing it in late 2012, then, then did a looming burning question enter my mind. 
And that is, how will the Internet of Things transform these structures of Internet governance and the public policy problems around the Internet? So I, I wanted to write the book because I was interested to know, as the Internet leaps from two-dimensional screens into the three-dimensional physical world, how should Internet governance leap from 2D to 3D as well? Great. Let's jump in and talk about what you found. What is the thesis of your book? The basic thesis of this book is that the internet is no longer just a communication network between people. It is a control network in which more things than people are connected and in which, you know, as ever, uh, control of this infrastructure is a proxy for uh, political power. Um, this I started with a story, you know, asking the question, what would the internet be doing if humans suddenly left the earth? And I gave many examples of this. Uh, but the reason I did that is to try to capture how far digital systems have leapt from these um, human facing display screens and applications into the physical world of material and objects, uh, often called the internet of things, uh, which includes home appliances, connected clothing, um, it, it, but it also includes the industrial IoT, if I can use that acronym, Internet of Things. It includes smart cities and also the Internet of Self, meaning that the body is now part of the object space. So the thesis of the book is that uh, the digital world and the physical world can no longer be viewed as distinct spheres, either in practice or in policy. They are completely intertwined. Now, when people hear um, IoT, uh, their instinct is to think exactly about some of the things you just identified, like light bulbs or baby monitors or their Alexa. Alexa, excuse me. Uh, but you, but you push your readers towards a much more capacious understanding of the IoT. So, what are some of the other major implementations of cyber embedded systems beyond consumer devices that we need to be aware of? Well, they're both far away from. Uh the the person, the human, and also very close to the human. So starting with the close to the human, you know, we have to start thinking about the IoT not as about refrigerators, uh, which it is about that, but also about things that touch human flesh, are embedded inside of the body, and that um, you know interact with our most personal spheres of human existence. So examples of that would be some, you know, we're in the middle of a once a century pandemic, and I think people are using telemedicine uh, to a greater degree than ever before. And therefore, in the present context, it's very easy to understand this kind of connection of these devices, insulin pumps, cardiac appliances, any number of diagnostic um, devices that connect in some way to the public internet and uh, convey information either to a doctor or to someone's smartphone. That's very, very personal. It's about the body. And some people around the world, um, I know some people with subdermal chips that connect wirelessly. This is not the screen-based internet. This is the internet that is hidden inside our very uh, human bodies or, or touching the human body. And then further away from people, the Internet of Things, of course, includes the industrial Internet of Things, uh, where every imaginable industry from agriculture to manufacturing 
to transportation not only uses digital information systems to run these, but uses materials and uses systems that actually embed the internet inside of objects in the same way that we do in homes. So that's a, that's a major transformation, one that has been happening for a while. And I also suggest that this basic cyber-physical transformation um, include things like smart city infrastructures, uh, traffic, water systems, and things that might use proprietary technologies at the end, but somehow connect at the back end or in some kind of intermediary infrastructure to what we would think of as the traditional internet. Can you explain why the growth and proliferation of the IoT requires that we reevaluate some basic mental categories we use to make sense of the internet, like who is and who isn't a tech company, and what it means to be online, or who is an internet user? That, that's a very interesting question. Uh, the, the internet entering the physical world, it challenges every definition of what we use in technology policy, what the terms we've used in internet governance and cybersecurity. Uh, to give a couple of examples, it completely topples the term technology company. It topples the term internet user. It makes us question what counts as internet freedom. On the, the topic of what is a tech company, there are all these acronyms that are used around the world, FANG, BATX, GAFAM, and <laughs> these are acronyms for what are considered technology companies. GAFAM usually stands for Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft. These are, these are companies with enormous market capitalizations and very obviously tech companies. But when you think about the internet diffusing into the physical world in every imaginable way, what that means is that every firm is now a tech firm. And they identify, with, they, they identify as that themselves. I do cybersecurity trainings for people who are on, on boards of directors of companies, and they definitely view themselves as tech firms whether it's a financial services company, a transportation company, um, even a company like Nike that has uh, products embedded. Uh, these companies all collect massive amounts of data about consumers. They all require extremely strong cybersecurity just to continue functioning and to have safe products. And they um, almost all of them have either services or products that are embedded with cyber capability. So what is a tech company versus a non-tech company? If you listen to many podcasts about uh, cyberspace or about internet governance, they make this distinction, but it's impossible to do that if you acknowledge that the internet is now in everything. Um, it's The same question exists for what counts as an internet user. And this is a category that we have always used uh, around the digital divide, around you know, consumer protection issues, around privacy. Uh, but what is an internet user in an environment where more objects than people are connected. Many of these, like energy sensors, for example, have no formal relationship to human, to, to people. And we already know, it's, we're going into an election as we record this, uh, most people also understand that people online are actually bots. They're programs that simulate human activity, whether it's retweets or something else. So, so that that's we have to rethink this category of of internet user. I mean, the most 
the most pressing issue that makes us have to possibly do away with that category is that people around the world, you know, almost half of people around the world have never been on the internet. And many in the U.S. do not use the internet in the way that you and I do, John. Um, these people, even if they've never been online, are directly affected by what happens online. Right now, there are uh, ransomware attacks on hospitals around the United States, even at a time when we need more hospital capacity than we have because of the coronavirus. Coronavirus. So the ransomware attacks in these uh, doctor's offices, in these hospitals, these are affecting people profoundly, even if they themselves are not online. Now, ultimately, what I want to get to with get to with you, Laura, are the implications of all of these really important changes. But before we get there, I want to make sure our listeners have a really strong understanding of the necessary context. So let's talk briefly about internet governance as it exists today. What are the different levers of power and control that we should be thinking about when we think about internet governance? I Thank you for asking it that way as levers of control. I often get asked the question, who should control the internet? Should it be the U.S. government? Should it be the Chinese government? Should it be Google? Should it be ICANN? Um, it's a... <laughs> When asked that way, it's a nonsensical question because there are so many points of power over the internet, and it's not just a system that has a set of keys that can be handed over from from one party to the other. Uh, There are layers upon layers of uh, power structures that um, have very powerful, um, they're very powerful forces over civil liberties, over economic freedom, and over geopolitical uh, power. Uh, so just to give an example of a few of these, uh, the one that is perhaps the most technologically sealed um, from an average uh, person who is um, you know, using the, like picking up an, an iPhone or accessing a site through their laptop or, or using a connected coffee pot at home, the a power behind that is technical standard setting. And there are hundreds of institutions around the world that establish these blueprints for how technology should be uh, built in order to achieve interoperability. In the internet space, uh, there are some that have long dominated. These include the Internet Engineering Task Force and the World Wide Web Consortium, for example. So they establish these standards, and in the design of the standards, there are public interest implications around privacy, security, and other issues. So that's one area. Another area that is um, also very technologically complex is um, we could generally call it critical internet resources. So this would include the domain name system that translates uh, human understandable words such as uh, cnn.com into the binary addresses that routers use to uh, structure information, route information, and to uh, you know bring uh, our communications and the communications of devices, for that matter, to their destination. Um, it's not just one. Even in that one area, there are you know, dozens and dozens of institutions that have various uh, points of power over that. Everything from the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers to the uh, regional internet registries that distribute IP addresses to registrars. Uh, so it's it's an acronym. I'm trying not to use acronyms, but that's a very uh, complex point of power itself. There's also the lever of the 
policymaking function of private technology intermediaries. These certainly can include content intermediaries such as uh, Facebook and Twitter and the ways that they make decisions around speech rights, around disinformation, around um, harassment and hate speech. Uh, That's a very, very powerful point of power that is highly privatized, but it goes far beyond and and deeper uh, than that in the technology infrastructure, uh, such as financial intermediaries, cloud computing providers, and all kinds of infrastructure providers that do not touch people, but that are embedded more in the center of the internet. So that's that's an area as well. Um, certainly the um, like technical architecture control of intellectual property rights, that's, that's a very, very powerful point of control over the internet. And of course, the geopolitical actions of traditional governments and how they enact control over the internet. So I could go on and on about that. I've written a lot about um, the internet governance ecosystem, but it's basically considered a a multi-stakeholder, multi-layered, you know, the best word is ecosystem of points of control by various actors. Now, I do want to clarify very quickly. I think some of our listeners would be surprised to hear uh, the content governance of private intermediaries appear third in your response there. And my sense is that you do agree that that issue is incredibly important. However, it tends to get too much of the intention when we talk about internet governance. Is that a fair characterization of your views and what you're trying to do in this book to drive uh, drive us to, to, to push your readers to move beyond thinking exclusively of internet governance as content governance? Absolutely. There, for more than a decade now, there has been a myopic focus on the software companies and social media companies that enact control over the flow of information. This includes disinformation, it includes intellectual property rights enforcement, it includes hate speech, it includes you know, every aspect of um, stopping, blocking, amplifying, restricting, enacting privacy over uh, the content between humans. This has distracted us. It's, well, it's incredibly important, and I've written a lot and studied a, a lot about um, the privatization of governance via those points. But that is the tip of the iceberg because there are infrastructure companies that are more powerful than Facebook and more powerful than Twitter and more powerful than Google that can easily block the flow of information um, in a way that is much more extensive and you know, not an exacto knife kind of blocking, but much more um, widespread blocking. If you think about uh, this as an issue, and you have to, being much further than just uh, the experience of someone in the United States. The majority of internet users are in China and India. And the Indian government has a regular routine of blocking internet access. And they don't have to do that through a social media company. There are many ways to block it using um, a telecommunications provider or network operator by withdrawing routes in uh, the internet's routing system using border gateway protocol by using the domain name system to block entire domains. It's a very efficient way of blocking. And I think sometimes those points of control are under accentuated and the content intermediaries, I think because people use those and see them on their devices, that that's over accentuated. Great. 
Let's move to some future internet governance concerns. So you highlight three critical ways uh, in which the future of inter internet governance will change, and that is around privacy, security, and interoperability. And we're going to go one by one through those. Let's start with privacy. Why does the proliferation of the IoT compel us to rethink privacy? Privacy is transformed by the Internet of Things. The question is, will any domain of human existence, whether in someone's bedroom, in the kitchen, in the bathroom, in the car, in the workplace, walking out on the street, interacting with law enforcement, interacting with um, employment practices, with insurance, you know, whatever we're doing in life, will any domain remain private? when surveillance is now no longer about um, discovering the contents of an email, but about listening into everything we do in, our, uh, in every domain of human life. That transforms privacy in a really profound way. It's massive and intimate data collection. And one thing that's remarkable about this area is that the massive data collection is technologically, it's, it's, it's a technical necessity in order for the systems to function. There's a constant feedback loop of sensors and actuators, um, data analysis. I mean, this is the real big data. It's a constant stream of data coming from devices. And that changes the notion of privacy because it's very difficult to limit it without limiting the actual um, efficient functioning of these systems, which brings so much human flourishing. So that's the tension. Um, there's also, a far more direct tie between privacy and the possibility of discriminatory practices where data collected in cars. And John, I'm not sure if you've experienced this yourself, but when, in, when you apply for insurance, sometimes they ask if you would be willing to share the data from your car. You live in New York City, which is why I'm asking that. Um, but there's a, I there's, do not drive. Right, I have exactly. a license, but I, I don't have a car. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're going to remain more private because of that, because uh, the data Excellent. collected from a car can um, be linked to insurance eligibility and rates. It can be used for predictive worth to businesses. It can be used for um, employment decisions. It can be used for law enforcement evidence gathering and political communication targeting. So the data that is collected is massive. It's a con continuous feedback loop. It's always on, which is why I use the tagline in the book, freedom and security in a world with no off switch. It's very difficult to have an off switch in this environment. Um, so that's, um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a massive um, privacy uh, conundrum. Well, that's a lovely segue into my next question because one of the things that that really stuck me stuck with me from your book is your description of the mediating power of computer screens and the rise uh, in recent years of ambient surveillance. Can you talk a little bit about ambient surveillance? In the recent past, it was possible to just turn off your laptop, your phone, your tablet, or turn off your you know PC. And you would think, well, well, there's a very neat distinction between being online and being offline. I would ask you and I would ask anyone and, and myself, if we were really going to delve into this um, quantitatively, like what are the data gathering points inside of your home right now? Um, some people have 
light bulbs, blinds, um, you know, control systems, intelligent televisions. Um, the, you know, these are just the obvious examples, uh, sound systems that are designed to listen in, collect data, enact some kind of, um, you know, actuating control over our environments. Um, this is, this is uh, something that is completely different because it's constant feedback, it's pervasive, and it's not exactly visible in the same way that other kinds of technologies are visible. Um, at one point, something like the, the kitchen sink, you know, when water came into the kitchen in, in history, that became a very visible technology. But at some point, we as a society stopped thinking about that as technology because it becomes so routine, so expected, and just kind of fades into the background. The internet is fading into the background in a similar way. And ironically, now people have faucets that are smart faucets that do embed what we now think of as technology. So there's this um, connection between those old kinds of technologies that we no longer think about in that way and things that we do think about as technology, but that are being buried, diffused, and embedded into those old systems. The archetypal image of surveillance architecture is the Orwellian monolith, a top-down, highly regimented infrastructure. But that is not how the internet, and even an increasingly privacy-invasive internet, operates. Can you talk about some of the synergies between data-hungry social media companies and national governments? We have the digital mediation of the public sphere, and then we have the privatization of the conditions of civil liberties within that sphere. Everything that we, I, I'm guilty of this myself. Sometimes I will draw on a whiteboard the internet as a cloud. Obviously, that is completely erroneous, um, but it makes it seem like it's some kind of public infrastructure when, in fact, it is run, funded, operated, administered, and governed uh, by the private sector. And what happened with social media and with most software that individuals use is that we use these systems for free, and then they're monetized by the collection of our data and the, um, you know, the distributing of ads based on that data. So that's the, as people call it, the surveillance capitalism model. The only reason that governments are able to surveil citizens is because they go through the private sector to get this data. So it's very important to understand that there's a dependency on the private sector. And that's why the private sector has been a very powerful force of pushing back against government surveillance in some cases in a system where, you know, in, in parts of the world, you could be arrested for insulting a monarch, for example. Uh, they've, they've pushed back against that kind of uh, surveillance and um, identification of users. But it's important to note that we have the privatization of the public sphere. That complicates um, the Internet of Things in a variety of ways, and it might actually present a public policy opportunity. With the Internet of Things, we don't yet have a system of surveillance capitalism where the collection of IoT data about us then serves ads. It's not a given that that is going to happen, but I think it would be not good for privacy, security, or for society or human flourishing if those two worlds collide and we have that kind of um, combination of data.
what are some concrete and realistic steps we could do to do exactly that, to ensure that we protect our privacy in the IoT? One thing that we can do is that we could shift from viewing both in law and but also in the, the private practices, we have to shift from viewing privacy as a, an individual point of control to a society-wide control. The reason that I say that is because the way that privacy has always worked, and you and I have done this many times, just checked, I agree, when we decide to use some kind of software without reading the privacy terms of of service. Uh, That is an individual, even if we don't read them, that's an individual consent to have data gathered about us. But with the Internet of Things, Consent is complicated because these are data collection points that are around us, embedded in objects, not through a screen, and also um, the case where we get caught up in the objects of other people, whether um, government facial recognition or uh, digital surveillance cameras in someone's backyard, a ring doorbell when we go trick-or-treating. I mean, we get caught up in the screens of others, but also the objects of other people. So. What we'd have to do in privacy is shift from this, um, I think it's Helen Nissenbaum calls it a a post-consent privacy regime, and I think that's an accurate way to say it, where you can't have individual consent anymore. How do you do consent with no screens or from people who don't own the devices or, or don't even know that they're there? Or if you move into a home where you don't even know that the previous owner still controls um, the surveillance cameras, right? The, the, the principle of notice and choice no longer easily applies. So one solution is to have um, a society-wide privacy regime, and it's time for that. And I think we have to decide, do we want to live in a world where we have the possibility of privacy or do we not? The European Union has the GDPR, which affects companies all over the world and um, helps us with privacy. It's not exactly... Uh, clear how that applies to the IoT in certain cases. So the first recommendation I would make, and I make quite a few uh, smaller recommendations in the book, but the large one is to have um, national privacy legislation that has restrictions on data collection and gives us, you know, as a society, some choice of privacy. Let, let, let me ask you a, a question, John. I'll just add, you know ask this as a question and to the listeners. Do you think you have a right to know if a data breach from your IoT data has occurred? I would say yes. I think that that is, um, you know, that should be a given. Should there be still, even with this endemic constant collection of data, the principle of data minimization can still be a critical check on both privacy violations and the implications of these data breaches. Because to what extent should a company be able to share my data our data with third parties in order to do something else like political campaigns or do something like, you know, in, you know, anything serving ads would probably be the best example. So we could bound the data based on operational performance rather than maximizing collection as we've done in social media for the monetization via ads. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. 
From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Well, very quickly, I am a very shameful owner of my own Alexa, so I definitely would like to be notified if there is a breach that affects my uh, personal data. Right. <laughs> Let, let's move on to security. Why is security such a problem in cyber-embedded IoT systems? And I should say for our, for our listeners who aren't aware, um, this is kind of a notorious problem about IoT devices uh, they are notoriously insecure, use you know default passwords, and are highly vulnerable to uh, very rudimentary cyber attacks. A cybersecurity breach is no longer about losing access to communication, which is serious enough, or losing access to bank accounts, which is serious enough, or losing access to uh, the ability to work from home or the ability to take classes, the ability to vote and um, gain access to political information. It's also now about the problem or, or, or threat of losing the ability to access medical care, to drive a car, or to have basic functioning in society. So the Internet of Things escalates security concerns to a great extent. Part of that is obviously around cyber war and you know, cyberspace has long been the fifth domain of warfare. Uh, that's been happening for a while. And I think it was a decade ago when the Stuxnet worm exemplified this political entanglement between digital systems and the material world. It was highly sophisticated code that was designed to infiltrate and sabotage the control systems of, um, that operated the Iranian nuclear centrifuges to, to slow down the Iranian nuclear program. Well, since then, there have been countless politically motivated attacks on infrastructure, including disruptions on a fairly regular basis to the Ukrainian uh, power systems. So when you think about the internet embedded in everything from transportation systems to energy systems to systems of food, systems of water, and everything that we do in home, in our homes, in our work, and, um, and on the road, that's a major, major leap. And um, as you said, John, uh, it's an area that is notoriously insecure. There are many reasons for that. Uh, part of it is because there's rapid innovation now, and there is a rush to bring products into the market with, in some cases, security as an afterthought. So it's, it's great to have all of this rapid innovation, but some of these systems are, um, are not secure and security is not built in by design. There's a second reason that's a bit more technical, and that's that some of these um, objects are constrained architectures in that there's not a lot of room for uh, microprocessing power or memory. So if a policymaker wanted to enact a law such as you have to encrypt everything coming from that device. Sometimes it's not that easy to do that because they're constrained architectures that may not have the processing power necessary to do that. And then um, I could give a number of different reasons, but maybe just one on the consumer side. If someone is coming home from the hospital with a new baby, uh, installing the car seat for the first time, 
you get the baby home, you and you set up your uh, your baby monitor um, in the um, you know by the crib so that you can hear and see what's happening. The very last thing that a uh, couple would think about is upgrading the password on the baby monitor. So there's some there's a lot of human agency around this as well. Laura, you have the distinguished honor of teaching me what transduction is. Uh, and this was really one of the fascinating things I learned in this book. So can you tell our listeners what transduction is, first of all, and how it changes the security calculus for cyber embedded devices? Excuse me, cyber physical embedded devices. This is an, this is an area from, from engineering that really helps to capture how cybersecurity is transformed and what is necessary to, to tackle. And if you think about the word transduction, it comes from Latin, which just means to lead across. And it, it, it tries to capture the conversion of one form of energy to another. Sensors detect or sense and capture a signal from the real world, such as motion, pressure, temperature, Sound, these are like sound is the manipulation of, of molecules that can be detected, a signal from the real world. And they convert that signal to an electrical form and then digitize and transmit that over a digital network. So there are these points of transduction where you take the physical stimuli, uh, like the proximity, a chemical reading, uh, insulin reading, uh, sound, pressure, temperature, and convert it into... Um, a, a digital system. And then the converse of that occurs where you can take the digital system and you can have a rotary motion. You can have a linear motion. You can uh, change the temperature, uh, you know, heating or cooling. You can brake in the cars, uh, pressure. So that's, that's the conversion point. So it goes both ways with the sensors and with the actuators. But the reason that this is important for, um, for policy, and as always, um, if you think about the basic thesis that systems of architecture are also systems of power that affect policy, this is a this is this transductive space, the intera- interaction between the physical world and the digital world. These are new spaces for lots of good things, right? Social, um, economic efficiency, social improvement, but they're also points of uh, manipulation uh, in vulnerability, where things can be attacked, manipulated, or you can enact surveillance. So if, if you think about just two, two more points on this, what this also means is that in order to, and I hear uh, typing, I'm not sure where it's coming from, but in order to, to uh, design these systems, you can't just be an information engineer or um, a computer scientist. It also requires mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, and material science and chemistry. So it, the policymaking around this requires a different set of, um, of technical and scientific understanding. And then it also means, and this is uh, most salient to cybersecurity concerns, is that in order to carry out a cyber attack, you'd never have to even touch a digital system. All you have to do is manipulate the physical transductive uh, sensing that happens in the real world. So Laura, that was my typing and I'm sorry for cutting across your answer there, but I did want to get to the role of governments and 
offensive cyber operations here very briefly. So you kind of urge governments to recognize the increasing stakes of the proliferation of the IoT and to be more cautious before exploiting cybersecurity vulnerabilities. Now, I want to ask you, is it realistic that governments will impose more self-restraint when the value of these types of attacks increases at the same time that the blowback risk does too? Always in internet governance, when there are decisions about design, coordination, administration, control, it involves a calculus and balance between what are often competing values, such as law enforcement versus privacy, or national security versus the digital economy. But if you take the cyber physical transformation and how the internet is entering everything into this, it really should give governments a pause on some of the, where the balance is, where the needle is on some of these. So for example, the vulnerabilities equities process and around the world, this is not just a US issue, but around the world, governments either purchase or otherwise stockpile knowledge about vulnerabilities in uh, digital systems. And when you think about the implications of the Internet of Things, this is not a good development. Historically, with the Internet, it was always the case that if someone found a vulnerability in, for example, IBM software, Microsoft software, Oracle, they would um, identify what that is and it would be patched. And that's a big part of cybersecurity. But now, instead of identifying those, there is a process of hoarding that knowledge for a very important reason. It is to be able to have cyber offense, because cyberspace is such a big part of the geopolitical national security landscape. But when you think about the implications of leaving something in the cyber physical world unpatched and not solving that problem, rather than just leaving the vulnerability open, where the government that hoards that knowledge may not be the only person who's aware of it, but hackers, adversaries, terrorists, that is, um, that is something definitely to rethink because these systems are not just, it's not just about hacking into or, or, or keeping a vulnerability around um, a, a financial system or a social media system or a communication system, which is already, already has enough implications but it's about keeping our energy grid up, keeping our transportation transportation systems going, uh, keeping food security, and you know our basic ability to move around and function in society. I went out to a, a farm in Culpeper County, Virginia, not far from where I live in Washington D.C., to take a look at the autonomous milking machines and see a cow walk into a stanchion and be milked by a robot. As, on a voluntary basis. And it hit me at that moment, the connection. And of course, the farmer can access that information over a smartphone. It, it really hit me about the connection between food security and internet governance. So when you think about the stakes of this and the internet being embedded into national security concerns, like the digital economy, the ability to function, the ability for hospitals to continue treating COVID patients in ICUs and our basic food security. It's very important to, to always look at where that needle is when balancing national security for cyber offense on one hand 
and national security to have cyber defense on the other. Before we move to interoperability, I want to give you a chance to list a few of the realistic and concrete steps we can take to improve the security of cyber embedded systems. An entire constellation of multi-stakeholder approaches is necessary to address this very real problem. And it is a very real problem. I think Bruce Schneier said it best when he said that the IoT is, quote, wildly insecure. There's not just a single lever to push to solve this problem, but there are things that can be done in private industry, in governments, and in institutions that that set uh, standards. So just to give a few examples, um, here's one that is not normally uh, discussed, and that's the large users of technology, large corporations. You have to remember that every corporation not only embeds cyberspace in their products and services, but they're also users of the IoT. So corporate governance is a critical part. People who run companies realize the liabilities associated with this and the vulnerabilities, and they sometimes get cyber insurance. In order, in order to do that, you have to get over a pretty high bar of having decent cybersecurity in your institution. So I think that that is one lever to improve the security. In many parts of the world, governments are the largest purchasers of IoT devices So when they have procurement policies to only purchase IoT devices that have a base level of security, that's another lever. Obviously, there are um, design things like privacy and security by design, having upgradability built into the device, lifecycle management, um, maximum transparency and disclosure. Just that, that alone would be a big step forward to be able to have transparency about what security is in place when data breaches occur, when vulnerabilities occur. Um, and, and, I, and I would say that the meaningful um, you know, privacy is very closely related to security here as well with some of the possible legislative actions. So there, there, there's also a range of external inducements that I didn't mention uh, beyond um, government procurement policies and clear, one, one issue is having a clear liability framework. A big problem, and I think this is one that just has to be solved by governments, is the liability clarification around these systems. Let's say if an autonomous vehicle, uh, such as in a mine in Australia or on the street, is um, it gets in an accident, who is responsible? Is it the network operator if there's a blip in the network? Is it the developer of the software in, in that? Is it the, the, person, the, the company that runs the GPS system? Is it the car manufacturer itself? Having liability clarification uh, would go a long way in this area. Let's move to the third critical area when it comes to the future of internet governance, which is interoperability. Interoperability may be less familiar to our listeners. So, Laura, let's start by my asking you what interoperability means and why it matters. At, At one point, Not very long ago, someone using an email system that was developed by one company could not exchange email with a friend who used an email system by another company. Fast forward to the 1990s, even when we had the proprietary online systems like America Online, Prodigy, CompuServe, these still were islands of information and islands of automation that did not have interoperability between the systems. 
it was much more um, a, a sense of fragmentation in businesses. Some would use IBM systems from soup to nuts, from everything from the servers and mainframes down to the uh, to the computers that were made by one company using a set of proprietary protocols that were not disclosed to other manufacturers so that there could be um, an exchange of information between them. DeckNet uh, by Digital Equipment Corporation. Apple products could not um, interoperate with uh, IBM products. It's not all that long ago that that was the case. So the um, TCP IP protocols, um, we could just call it for short, the internet protocol, um, and the whole set of standards around that that were developed um, that led to the internet as we know it today, <clears throat> solve that problem by creating a set of open standards that any, let's say, John, if you and I wanted to start a company and sell products into the internet environment, we could do that only because we could access the standards and blueprints to use to develop our products with an assurance that they could um, interoperate with other products. So that's what interoperability means. And why is interoperability in the IoT lagging so far behind? You use the term proprietary disclosures in the book to explain the different standards that have cropped up across sectors and industries and companies. Because the Internet of Things is arising in products and areas of um, technology that did not arise in the Internet environment in, and in the internet ecosystem, often they are built by different sets of companies that have their own um, standard setting organizations and consortia. So it's to, just to summarize, I would say at this point in the internet of things development, it's a, just like a spaghetti of different kinds of competing standards. And um, part of that is because there are uh, competing standards institutions that are developing uh, same kinds of open architectures to try to solve this problem. It's not clear which one is going to dominate. And it's also not clear whether we want it to dominate because the fragmentation in this space might actually be have salutary effects for privacy and security. We don't want a toaster connected to a nuclear reactor, for example. So the fragmentation that um, we want, you know, has often been um, thought of as um, a limiter for innovation in the digital information system space, and it is, uh, may not be um, a limitation in this space, but actually something that has salutary effects. But right now, there's not that much interoperability between systems and, um, you know, the, in one particular area, such as home devices, it would be better to have more open architectures so that there could be more innovation and more consumer choice. But when you look at um, interoperating different areas, um, it may be better to have some fragmentation and some uh, disconnect between those. Now, in the book, you invoke the concept of both positive and negative freedoms. It strikes me that security and privacy are primarily negative freedoms. And your presentation of interoperability is uh, maybe not a freedom, but a um, or a positive freedom, but a positive virtue. Um, and by that, I mean that by uh, retaining interoperability, what you're trying to do is promote economic opportunity in, in innovation. Would you agree with that characterization? It is a good way to think about 
liberty as um, positive and negative liberties in general. And there are different kinds of, um, you know, legal mechanisms that kick in in each. But what, what I would say is that it, think about a positive right in this environment, such as um, internet governance or the internet of things, as being something like the right to innovate. So economic liberty, the right, the freedom to innovate is, or the right to repair. These are positive freedoms that require the ability to access tools, access standards, and the ability to innovate based on that. Another positive freedom is the right to speak and um, to do commerce, to, to connect, to um, develop a website and be able to put a shingle out and do business immediately. These are, these are positive liberties. Um, on the negative side, the right to not be killed by an, you know, I'm saying that in an, an intentionally inflammatory way, but the right to not be killed by an IoT device is another type of device. And I think what I would say is uh, it's important not to, you know, bifurcate these in uh, too much of a binary way because the something like the right to privacy is very, very closely, you, you might think about that as, you know, not being harmed by a privacy and invasive thing. You might think of that as a negative liberty, but it's also, it also has to be thought of a positive liberty because the ability to speak and the ability to do commerce requires a certain amount of privacy. So I think it's, I think it's a lot more gray than just um, positive and, and negative liberties. I want to give our listeners one very concrete example of the changing imperatives of internet governance in an era of cyber embedded systems. Laura, can you tell our listeners why farmers hate the DMCA? Something like farming has always been, you know, very disconnected from from cyber systems, you know, being out uh, on a tractor, bringing hay in, taking care of animals. It's an area that has been clearly offline versus the online world. So you would, farmers would be online when they came into their home and, or, or took their phone out. But now because these cyber embedded sensors are in um, irrigation systems that farmers use, they are um, embedded in microchips inside of animals. Um, I mentioned the voluntary milking system before, and certainly um, inside of tractors. The same thing that's happened to our vehicles uh, has happened to tractors in that they have a lot of digital components in them. And um, farmers have always had a great deal of autonomy and repairing their systems. And something like the Digital Millennium Copyright Act and other um, legal regimes around the world have prevented farmers from repairing their systems because sometimes to enable to get into the software, you have to circumvent the locks on the systems that are designed to protect intellectual property rights. And that could potentially be an illegal act. So that that's um, kind of an extreme example, but one that serves to accentuate how there's no longer a distinction between online and offline spheres. The upshot of everything we've discussed so far, as you lay it out in the book, is a call for both a normative and practical reimagining of the internet. And one thing in particular that you call for updating is the concept of internet freedom. 
what are the problems what are sorry, excuse me what are the problems with that somewhat fetishized ideal as you describe it as it exists today i decided to have an entire chapter that looked at the trajectory of internet freedom conceptions over the years because it helped me make the point that all of the scholarly attention and policymaker attention and also the attention that comes from private companies has been entirely focused on content-related issues. This is the case, um, everything from John Perry Barlow's famous Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace that came from the Communications Decency Act reaction to um, the- John Perry Barlow is barking right now. (laughs) uh, Exactly, my my office mate in my home office is weighing in on the concept of internet freedom. Very, very passionate and avid uh, advocate, it seems. Exactly. Uh, and by the way, animals have embedded microchips, so it's a good example of that. But conception, conceptions of internet freedom have, you know, from John Perry Barlow through uh, the State Department conception that came from Hil- Hillary Clinton's famous internet freedom speech to internet freedom as touted by various corporations that are content intermediaries. It, it's all around uh, content and free speech. And I'm a very, very big advocate of free speech. But when you think about the real transformation of the internet to being embedded into the material world, the conceptions of internet freedom have to move from speech rights into issues of consumer safety and security. And you know, if internet freedom evolves at all, it has to evolve into viewing cybersecurity as the great human rights issue of our time that is just as important as speech rights. In talking about the future um, and reading this book, I wasn't sure if you were laying out the case for why the old multi-stakeholder model of internet governance is on life support or laying out this almost backdoor argument for the rapid growth of the multi-stakeholder model. Can you speak to that a little bit and where you expect internet governance to move in the future? Multi-stakeholder internet governance is a term that captures how the private sector, governments, new institutions, and in some cases civil society jointly enact points of control and governance um, over the infrastructure of the internet. And I think that's an appropriate way to say it. It's, it's If anything, it's been uh, you know, highly... Um, privatized. So sometimes people use the term private sector-led multi-stakeholder governance. On the other hand, there has been a resurgence and a very powerful one of calls for multilateral governance where uh, traditional state actors have had um, a great deal more power in determining our digital future. So there always has been that tension. And I've been an advocate of the multi-stakeholder model, even while criticizing it and and acknowledging that the definitions are very fuzzy, the balance of power, always a tenuous one and always an ever-changing one. But I would say that with the Internet of Things and the the same issues apply, the the very same issues apply. It still is um, a set of infrastructures that are owned and operated by the private sector. So it's very important to acknowledge that governance is enacted in that way governments are involved and you know we have some human agency in the same way as not not in the same way but in different ways we have human agency to make decisions 
and there are also a new set of institutions. So I would say it's a very strong case for maintaining the the private sector-led multi-stakeholder governance model. What would concern me is if it starts tipping uh, more towards government control over these infrastructures. Because when you think about the surveillance that can be enacted and the types of control that can and are enacted over these points of uh, transduction and points of material objects around us, um, that would be an, uh, that would be a tipping point that would be very problematic. Laura, we're just about reaching uh, the end of this podcast, and I want to end with with two questions. Uh, we'll start with the first one. So first, are you optimistic that we, humanity, society, the United States, is going to be able to take up this call uh, to manage this increasingly grave cyber and internet governance problem in the future? I'm very optimistic about how the IoT in the future will interact. Anyone with, well, we're in the middle of a pandemic now. And so I think people understand the importance of telemedicine uh, capability to just be able to function and have healthcare. Anyone with a disabled family member already understands this. Anyone with a family member um, with Alzheimer's understands the upside of the internet of things. There are going to be um, it's, it's environmental rights. Um, the internet of things is already helping conservation efforts with things like energy sensors, helping to detect leaks in pipelines, for example. Autonomous vehicles are already improving the safety and the productivity and a variety of industrial settings. And I assume that that kind of uh, safety will translate into autonomous vehicles everywhere when we get to that point in society. Uh, These are all uh, amazing things for human flourishing, for the economy, and for our ability to function in an efficient way in society and interact with each other and continue getting healthcare even in the, mid of a, in, in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, and I'm an engineer at heart. I love technology. I'm a big user of technology. So I don't, um, I'm not dystopian at all. The reason that I raise these questions and concerns and recommendations about security, privacy, interoperability, consumer safety, and other issues is exactly because these uh, technologies are so important to human flourishing. I think uh, anybody who's in a position of, of governing would be well served by reading this book and doing a little bit more forward thinking. But before I let you go, uh, I did wanted to ask, a lot has happened since you published this book. Uh, frankly, I wanted to have a discussion with you about current events, but there are too many topics to choose from. So I'm going to rephrase the question. If you had another 12 months to work on this book and you could add another chapter or or another few vignettes here or there, what topic from the last or what event from the last 10 to 12 months do you wish you could have included? Well, there are two big contextual things on my mind right now. One is the election and the other one is the pandemic. And I did in the book address the possibility of the internet of things being used to disrupt democracy and disrupt elections. So I feel like I covered that um, in, you know, unfortunate detail. But what I didn't anticipate at all was that halfway through my book tour and, you know, introducing this book, that we would be hit with a once a century pandemic. That was definitely not on my radar screen, even though I did discuss health devices in the context of the IoT in the book. 
So I think what I would do is I would probably flip the question that I asked in the beginning. Um, and, and actually, the question I asked is retrospectively chilling in light of the pandemic. I asked, what would the internet be doing if humans suddenly left the earth? And I think in light of the pandemic, I might also ask the question, what would humans be doing if the internet suddenly left the earth? Because we would really be in um, a greater problem than we are now. Imagine if we, um, people have criticized the internet a lot over the years for very real reasons, social isolation, uh, social media and loneliness, hate speech, polarization, uh, hacking, all, all kinds of, of problems, disinformation. But boy, we sure need it now. And I think the pandemic is an example of how much we need the internet and you know, in order to function. So I would probably ask that question, what would we be doing during a pandemic if we didn't have the internet? Laura Didardis, thank you for coming on the pod and to all the listeners on the New Book Network. The book is The Internet and Everything, Freedom and Security in a World with No Off Switch. I promise you'll enjoy it, even if you're not a technologist. Thanks. Thank you so much.